morning, everyone. It is a joy to worship our Lord together as one church meeting in different locations. And I just want to say hello to the rest of our church meeting uh, in various venues uh, here on this site. And also those of you meeting at our Northwest Regional Center at the Crowfoot Odeon Theaters. Those of you meeting uh, in, in, as part of our East Edge Ministry in Homes. Also those of you who are part of our Gateway Church meeting down in Bridgeland. And those of, us, those of you who are tuning in from Holden, Alberta. <sighs> and, uh, you know, it's, the list is getting longer. And last week uh, I had the joy. It was, uh, we had a gathering of those people that... Um, are, are sort of interested in us perhaps starting a regional in the south part of Calgary. And so last week at this time, I was down there. Over 300 people were there. We had a wonderful time together. And uh, so we'll see what God's up to there as well. Well, a story's told of a farmer who was in court suing a truck company uh, for injuries sustained in an accident uh, with one of the company's trucks. And the company's lawyer uh, called Farmer Joe to the stand and started out by saying, Now, Joe, isn't it true at the scene of the accident you said, I'm just fine? Well, Farmer Joe responded by saying, Well, I'll tell you what happened. I loaded up my favorite cow, Bessie. I didn't ask for details, said the lawyer. I just answered the question. Did you not say at the scene of the accident, I'm just fine? Well, Farmer Joe continued, well, you see, I just got Bessie and my mule Chester into the trailer and I was driving down the road. Your Honor, interrupted the lawyer, I am trying to establish the fact that at the scene of the accident, this man told the sheriff that he was just fine. Now, six months after the accident, he's suing my client and I believe he's a fraud. Please tell him to simply answer my question. The judge thought for a moment and then said, I'd like to hear what Joe has to say about what happened. Well, Joe thanked the judge and said, well, as I was saying, I, was just lo I just loaded uh, Bessie and Chester into the truck and we were driving down the highway when this huge semi-truck ran the stop sign and smacked my truck on the right side. It was a horrible accident, sir. I was thrown in the ditch in one side and Bessie and Chester were thrown in the ditch in the other side. Now, Your Honor, you know, I was hurting real bad. I just couldn't move. And I heard old Bessie and Chester moaning something awful in the other, in the other ditch. I knew they were both in terrible shape. He says, right about then, he said, the, uh, the sheriff showed up, and he could hear Bessie moaning and groaning. So he went over to her, and he said, you know, how you doing, old gal? She just kept moaning, and after listening to that for several minutes, he pulled out his gun, and he put her out of her misery. And then he went over to Chester, and after listening to him groan for a while, you know, he put him out of his misery too. Well, then he came over to cross the other side of the road, and he looked at me, and he said, Boy, you don't look so good. How are you doing? And Judge, I don't know what you would have said, but I said, I'm doing just fine. <laughs> I'm doing just fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, sometimes in life when we're asked how we're doing, you know, we'll say, I'm doing just fine. When the reality is we're not doing so fine because we've got some real storms and issues going on in our life. Well, I know Jesus in John chapter 16, he kind of warned us about that. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Expect it. Count on it. Like Farmer Joe, you know, a perfectly good day 
In some cases, a life that's filled with incredible promise can suddenly get broadsided by unexpected trouble and can change our lives forever. We see this truth played out in the life of the next prophet we're going to look at um, in our study as we make our way through the Old Testament. And his name is Daniel. And so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles if you have them with you and uh, to the book that's uh, named after Daniel. And uh, we're going to look at the first couple of chapters there. But before we get into it, I'm going to invite you to stand and let's dedicate our time to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for these prophets that we're meeting in your word and the examples of their lives. And right now, Lord, I want to pray that you would teach us from the life of Daniel, an individual, Lord, who's, who had a plan for his life and then things got turned upside down. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to focus and uh, that we would just have a, a soft heart. We'd, we'd hear what you have to say to us and then respond in whatever way you call us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So imagine waking up one morning to find that the United States of America has invaded our country and our beloved city of Calgary overnight. And they've done so because they need our natural and our human resources to stimulate their economy and to solve their economic woes. Imagine them ransacking our church buildings, taking everything of value and destroying um, the rest. Imagine them coming into your home and taking your children back to Washington, D.C., never to be seen again. And your children will be reprogrammed to serve the interests of the United States. Now, of course, we can't imagine something like this happening. I mean, this is totally foreign to our way of thinking. And yet, you see, this is exactly what the Jewish people in Daniel's day experienced. We can't imagine it happening and a lot of times we'll read passages like we are reading here in Daniel, and we'll read of experiences like this that these people went through, and we can't relate. In chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. After invading Jerusalem, we read in verse 3 that Nebuchadnezzar, he orders his chief officer to gather up the young men from families of nobility. And he, planned, he has them shipped off to his palace in Babylon where he plans to put them on a special um, retraining program, re-engineering program, let's call it that, a course of, of, for over a three-year period in preparation to serve his interests. Daniel is one of these young men and he's selected to be taken because he meets the criteria that Nebuchadnezzar has set. And that criteria we find in verse 4. It says there that Nebuchadnezzar wanted young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So from this we can conclude that Daniel was one of the brightest and one of the best in Israel. He was well-informed. He had aptitude for all kinds of learning. He was good with people. 
And on top of that, he was strikingly handsome. I mean, some people just seem to have it all, don't they? In short, when Daniel lived in Jerusalem, his future looked very bright. He had all that he needed to have a successful career, a good income, a good marriage, a wonderful family, and respect in the community. But then in a matter of days, all that changes. In fact, when I think of the Advent season, I think of Mary and Joseph and the fact that they actually faced the same challenge. Life was good for Mary and Joseph. They were just teenagers at the time. Their future looked bright. And suddenly overnight, their world was turned upside down by an angel's announcement that Mary would be with child through the Holy Spirit, one day giving birth to Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings. Jesus coming into their lives would rock their world and their life from that moment on would never be the same again. Well, the future looked bright for Daniel as well until at the tender age of 16 or so, his city, as we've mentioned, is invaded by Babylon and Daniel and a small group of others are taken away uh, to Babylon. Daniel will spend his entire life away from his beloved homeland. Everything that is near and dear to him is taken away from him with no promise of return, including his family, his friends, his faith community, his hopes and dreams, and his culture. He gives the best of years of service, not to his king, to his country, but he gives it to a foreign king. In fact, foreign kings. There were four of them during his lifespan of 90 years. Gave his life to a foreign country as a slave and a servant. And yet, despite all of the hurt and the disappointments that undoubtedly came his way, Daniel not only survives, but he thrives. And so in this message, I want us to learn from Daniel's life. We have much to learn from him about what to do when you end up in Babylon. What do you do when the life that you planned is suddenly turned upside down and you find yourself in Babylon, that place that you may never see your hopes and dreams ever become a reality, that place where your prayers never get answered the way you hoped they would. How did Daniel thrive in Babylon? Well, to begin with, Daniel thrived in Babylon because he had a deep conviction that God is in control. The sovereignty of God is really the overarching theme in the book of Daniel. And as, as you read the story of Daniel, you just get this sense that in the midst of all the upheaval and all of the uncertainty that's going on, Daniel had this amazing composure because he had this deep conviction that God is in control of the details of his life. Turn over to Daniel chapter 2. In verse 1 it says, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So here we have the most powerful man in the world at that time who has everything that people could ever dream of having. 
He's the CEO. He's the successful entrepreneur. He's the elite statesman of his day. He's wealthy. He's popular. He's followed constantly by the paparazzi. He's on the cover of Time in a People magazine. The women adore him. They want him. He's the man of his day. He's living the life that many people in his world, not to mention our world, will sell their souls to live. And yet he's miserable. He's unhappy. He can't sleep. And now he's having dreams that he can't even remember. But these dreams are haunting him. And so what does he do? He turns to the experts. He turns to the specialists of his day. The astrologers, the channelers, all the people who are in the negative evil spirit world. He pulls them all in. And he says in verse 2, I have a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. And the astrologers say to him, oh, long live the king. King, tell us. Tell us your dream and we will interpret it. And the king says, I don't remember the dream. That's why I called you in here. I mean, this is your business. This is what you're good at. You figure out what my dream was and what it means. And the astrologers say, oh, king, no one but the gods would know such things. And the king <coughs> replies to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut to pieces and your houses turned into rubble. When the astrologers responded by saying, but what you're asking for is impossible, we read in verse 12, the king gets so angry and so furious that he orders the execution, not only of those who were before him in the palace, but he orders the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. Not exactly a wise thing to do. Now in those days, this was not unusual, by the way. If you ticked off the king for any reason, it was not uncommon for him to have you executed or to dismember you or to, te uh, or to tear down your house. That's why when the king ain't happy, I mean, nobody is happy. I mean, it was bad news then. Now, unfortunately, when the king gave the order that all of the wise men would be executed, that included Daniel and his three close companions. Because if you go back to chapter 1, after they went through the three years of training, the king met with them and interviewed them. And at the end of this long interview, he came to the conclusion that the wisdom of these four young men was ten times greater than the wisdom of anybody else in his kingdom. He had high regard for them. He made them part of his wise men, the team, his advisors. Well, now he lost his cool, ordered that all of them be executed, and that included Daniel as well. And you would think that it would have been a bit unnerving for Daniel to discover that he's on his way to be executed. And yet we read in verse 14 that when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Daniel responds in a very cool, calm, and collected way. He doesn't panic. He doesn't fall apart emotionally. He calmly asks what's going on and why the king has issued such a harsh decree. And then he listens to what the commander says, and then he responds with courage. 
Now, how was Daniel able to have such composure here? I mean, he is being led to the execution place. I believe it was because Daniel had this deep conviction that his God was in control, that his God wasn't surprised by what was going on. It wasn't like God was up there going, oh, gee, I didn't plan for that to happen. Didn't see that coming. You see, how we respond when our life falls apart depends on how we see God. If you do not believe in God, then where your life ends up pretty much depends on you because it's all about you. You're the center of your universe. If life gives you a bad hand, well, unfortunately, you're just one of the unlucky ones. According to your philosophy, you live, you die, that's it. That's all she wrote, folks. Now, others say they believe in God, but, you know, they don't want God really messing with their lives or the direction of their lives. And so they, they kind of make up their God the way that children put together Lego. They kind of pick and choose the attributes they want their God to have. And so they make statements like, well, I believe in a God who's like this, but I don't believe in a God who's like that. So I'll kind of make up my God the way I want him to look and to be. Now, these people focus solely on those scriptures and they attend those churches that describe the God that they want rather than the God who is. And they end up with a God made in their image rather than the true God in whose image they are made. Now, making up a God you like and that you can agree with you know, may work for a time when you know, the, the seas are glassy and life is smooth. But your counterfeit God's going to crumble real fast when tough times come. When in the case of Daniel, for example, the king orders your execution. For it is then that you realize that the God you made up is able to help you about as much as the teddy bear that you bought your child for Christmas. Not very much. The reason that Daniel was able to be so calm here the reason he had the peace of God while staring death in the face is because his focus was not on his circumstances. His focus and trust was in God. He lived victoriously in Babylon because he believed that God was fully aware of his situation and that he was very much in control and that he could be trusted. Furthermore, Daniel lived victoriously in Babylon because he found strength in his friends. As Daniel's being led away by this executioner and he's having this discussion with him, he asks the, the executioner that he wants to talk to the king. And again, we read in verse 9 of chapter 1 that God gave favor to Daniel and he had that to be able to go and talk to this most powerful person. And so he goes and sees the king. He hears him out. And then he basically says to the king, I will interpret your, your dream. Just give me some time. And verse 17 says that after that meeting, Daniel returns to his house and he explains the matter to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which one little guy in Sunday school referred to as your shack, my shack, and a bungalow. 
Anyways, these three fellows were, were Daniel's close friends. And he sought them out at the time of his greatest trial. Now, folks, make no mistake. When you live in Babylon, you will not do well trying to make it on your own. In fact, God never intended for us to go it alone. Our friends multiply our joy, and they divide our grief. Nancy Ortberg tells the story of James Stockdale, who served just under eight years in prison during the Vietnam War. And Julius Segal, in his book, writes about different occasions when Stockdale's captors would repeatedly shackle him up and leave him out under the burning sun for, for days on end, usually three days at a time, while the sun literally burned and blistered his skin. And when he tried to fall asleep, they would beat him to keep him awake. Well, after one particularly difficult beating, Stockdale heard in the background the snapping of towels, which was kind of an unusual sound. And at first he ignored it, but over time he realized that there was a pattern to the snapping. With his training in Morse code, he began to recognize the letters that were being snapped out. G-B-U-J-S. G-B-U-J-S. God bless you, Jim Stockdale. Those little messages from real people who cared about him brought hope and renewed determination to keep on keeping on in the midst of horrific suffering. You know, it's in times like this when we're facing the most difficult of circumstances that we realize how absolutely essential other people are in our lives. We often take it for granted when things are going well. Seagull goes on to write, because they were prohibited from speaking to each other, this small community of prisoners came up with the most ingenious ways of communicating with each other and encouraging each other to keep on keeping on. If one man walked by another man's cell, he didn't just walk by. No, he actually would drag his sandals in code to communicate a message to the prisoner in that cell. They would send messages to others through noises that they made, shaking out their blankets or through belching or snoring, or blowing their noses, and other bodily noises I will not name. <laughs> All in an attempt to encourage one another. So ladies, when your husband belches, snores, and so forth, he's trying to communicate his love for you, okay? Just, <laughs> just see it as that, okay? You know. But you know, I find that so amazing. I mean, don't you find it rather ironic that, that in those situations where maintaining friendships is so difficult, like in this situation in prison here, people will, will attempt to move heaven and earth to risk their lives for just a taste of it. Just a little bit of a message that says, I'm thinking about you and I care about you. I'm praying for you. Anything to hang on to. And yet, here in our free society where it is so available to us, we often take it for granted, don't we? My question is, are you in community with at least 
a few other people. Even if you aren't facing a hardship now, are you investing in a small group of trusted, godly friends who will be there to support you, to stand with you, to pray for you, to pray with you, and be there beside you when your life turns upside down, when you get shipped off to your Babylon? Daniel was able to live victoriously in Babylon in part because he found immense strength and hope through his friends. Furthermore, Daniel was able to live victoriously in Babylon because he believed in the power of prayer. Notice in verse 18, he urges his friends to join him in pleading for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery of the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar had and the need to be able to interpret it. Together they turned to God and they called on God through prayer. In Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, the way to face our fears is praying about everything. He writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Paul makes a connection between worry and prayer. He says that the best way to learn to worry about nothing is to pray about everything. The next time you're tempted to worry, the next time fear steals your heart, pray instead. Anytime you feel a twinge of anxiety, God wants you to take it directly to him and tell him about it. You see, your job is, is not to make those anxious feelings inside of you go away. Maybe they will go away, maybe they won't. You really can't control that. I mean, have you ever been, you know, awakened in the middle of the night and, and, and you start obsessing about something that you're worrying over? And, you know, it, <coughs> I can't think of how many times I've, I've, I've preached on worry and how stupid it is. And so there I am in the middle of the night, you know, preaching to myself, you know, this is stupid, you know, you shouldn't be concerned about this, you know, let it go, give it to God, go back to sleep. Can't sleep. Can't get rid of it. And what I have found that sometimes the only way that I can let it go is I literally have to get up out of bed, I have to go in the living room or someplace, get on my knees and talk to God about it or get on the computer and just write out a prayer to God. Do something to just somehow give it to him. Your job when, when you have anxiety and fear is to take everything, everything, great or small, to the Lord in prayer. And folks, we can do that. Now, by the way, our enemy Satan, he will do everything he can to convince you not to pray. He'll whisper that God isn't interested in hearing your concerns. He'll tell you that your prayers won't make any difference because you have too little faith or, or because you don't know how to pray right or because you aren't worthy to pray or because you don't pray passionately enough or long enough. Don't buy into those lies. Those are just attempts to get you not to pray. To just keep trusting in your own ability rather than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Those are just attempts to prevent you from joining with others in prayer 
And folks, when we don't pray, our enemy wins. Nebuchadnezzar, he trusted in his experts, his astrologers, to find the answer within themselves. And they knew full well the answer was not in them. Daniel and his friends knew that only God knew the answer. And so they put their trust in him. Prayer trusts in a God who is able. You know, a lot of people think that the reason they worry is because they have a certain problem. I mean, if I just didn't have this problem, well, then I wouldn't worry. Well, that's an illusion, friends, because problems come and go, but worries remain. The reality is worry is not a direct product of my circumstances. Rather, worry is a direct product of my beliefs. The reason we worry is because we are convinced that our problem is bigger than our God. Many years ago now, when he was just five years of age, one of our sons came charging into my office at home where I was studying. He was out of breath. He had a serious look on his face, and he says, Dad, it's an emergency. We need you to come right away. He says, there's this big kid who chased us home from the park. You know, he's still outside trying to get us. Well, so I got up casually and walked up stairs and out to the front door thinking to myself sure what are you going to do if this kid so-called kid you know is six foot five 240 pounds looking for a fight well fortunately he was only half my size but i couldn't help but notice that the moment i arrived how secure the boys began to feel with me being there i noticed very quickly their heads began to be held higher they crossed their arms a little bit. And yeah, just come, just, 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 just come on, come on. Just try. And they, in no uncertain terms, communicated as he walked away that if they ever messed with him again, they were going to have to deal with Big Daddy. You see, their anxiety went away, or at least way down, because they were convinced that their dad could handle their problem. Now that they're older, they know better. <laughs> but you get my point. So here's Paul sitting in prison. For all he knows, he's going to be executed the next day. There are people outside who despise him, who are trashing his reputation, and yet he writes, do not be anxious about anything. Daniel stands in front of the most powerful man in the world. He's a nutcase, really. He really is. This man is an evil man. And this man has asked for the impossible. And yet he says to the king, confidently and coolly, give me a little time and I will have an answer for you. Do you think Daniel said that out of his own confidence? No, that came out of a confidence in God. How are Paul and Daniel able to do this? Because they are convinced there is someone much more powerful than the executioner or the king. They are convinced that they are not alone, but are loved by the king of kings and lord of lords, and that is all that matters. See, friends, peace comes in knowing that our Lord remains constant 
in a world that's spinning out of control. The reality is God is more than able to handle any problem that we can bring to him. Creating planets isn't a problem for him. Neither is raising the dead or calming the sea. Nothing is too difficult for God to handle, but he's waiting for us to recognize his power and to ask for his help. Genuine prayer is based on the knowledge that God is absolutely faithful. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 1, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. If you come to God in prayer as Paul did, as Daniel and his friends did, persuaded that he loves you, that he cares about you, that he's able to do more than you could ever ask or think, your trust in him, not your feelings, but your trust in him will extinguish the anxiety in your life. And then finally, Daniel lived victoriously in Babylon because he believed his problems had a purpose. I read recently that according to research, the thing that causes people to give up most when they're experiencing hardship and suffering is when they believe that their suffering has no meaning or purpose. And yet what kept Daniel going was the awareness that God was at work in his life and he was using his problems to accomplish a greater purpose. As I said earlier, back in chapter 1, verse 9, we read that God caused the officials to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. God was at work behind the scenes. The end of chapter 2, after Daniel reveals the dream and interprets it to King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 46 says that the king falls prostrate before Daniel. And he says, surely your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. I am sure that when, king, when, when Daniel saw the most powerful man in the world prostrate down before him and saying that his God is God, that Daniel began to connect some dots here of why God allowed him to go into exile. I'm sure for quite some time, Daniel wondered what God was up to. Why am I here? What's going on, Lord? But now, he has the greatest king on the planet, the most powerful man on the planet on his knees before him, acknowledging that his God is God. And he begins to realize that his being placed in captivity was not just a random, meaningless event. God was not asleep. God had not broken his promise or left Daniel alone. No, God was at work. He was up to something in Babylon, this place of great suffering. Friend, whatever you face in your life, always remember that God is with you. And he's working behind the scenes. And he knows things that you don't know. He sees things that you don't see. Our problems have a purpose. Romans 8.28 makes, makes uh, this promise. It says, and we know that in 
all things, not just in some things, but in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And what this is saying is that life is not a series of random events that have no meaning. If you are a child of God, nothing can come into your life without your heavenly Father's permission. Nothing, not prosperity, not hardship, not even death. Years ago, when my doctor told me that my health situation was grim, I still vividly recall sitting in a little booth waiting for another medical test, praying and waiting on God. And the Lord saying to me, Henry, you're not coming home one second sooner than I say you're coming home. It seemed like such a simple promise, and yet it was a profound promise. Because that simple promise diminished the fear of death within me and brought incredible peace in my soul. Because I realized that my life wasn't in the hands of doctors. It wasn't in the hands of medical reports. My life was in the hands of Almighty God. And that my responsibility is to keep my eyes on Jesus and to rest in Him. Friends, your problems have a purpose. Everything that happens to you is God-filtered. The problems or hardships you're having are not an accident. They are not news to God. Now again, please understand, I am not saying that everything that happens is God's will, because it isn't. There are many things that happen in life that are not God's will. Sin is not God's will. The evil we see in our world is not God's will. It was not God's will for Adam and Eve to sin, and as a result, bring sickness and disease and death upon mankind. God's will was that life here on earth would be a paradise. That was his plan from the beginning. But when man chose to go his way rather than God's way, the result was that evil entered the cosmos. This world was broken. And most of the things that happen are because we now live in a broken world. And it is so important that we understand this. God doesn't cause all of our problems. He doesn't have to. Many times we bring so many problems on ourselves, don't we? Or other people bring problems on us. However, God will allow what was, what was meant for evil to accomplish good in our lives. He will allow troubles and adversity and accidents to come into our lives for a purpose. And some of those purposes include getting our attention, waking us up to his reality. It's like he's snapping his fingers and saying, hello, I'm here. Sometimes he will allow these things to come our way to draw us closer to himself because we're just kind of in a lethargic state, vegetative state. I believe in God, yes. <laughs> and sometimes he allows these things to come our way to display his power through our weakness, the way he did through Daniel. You see, our disappointments are often God's appointments. God could have kept Paul out of prison at Philippi, but he allowed him to go to prison, and as a result, the Philippian jailer became a Christ follower. The trajectory of his eternity was changed. God could have kept Jesus from going to the cross, but he allowed the crucifixion so that he could do a resurrection. 
God could have kept Daniel away from Babylon, but he allowed it in part so that through Daniel, he could reveal his reality to King Nebuchadnezzar. Friends, I'm wondering, has it ever occurred to you that the very thing you most want removed from your life might be the very thing that God is using to keep you close to him? The very thing that's causing you to trust him daily? The very thing that he's using to work in you or to work through you for his ultimate glory? Has it ever occurred to us that people may never accept Christ through our impressiveness, but through Christ's strength made perfect in our weakness? So remember, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And as long as you trust him and live in him and follow him, that plan will become a reality. Because God is sovereign, no person, no circumstance can touch you without God's permission. Nothing can frustrate God's purpose for your life other than you and how you respond to him. But nothing else can. Job said of God, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. I'll close with this. When the boys were young, I remember a little game I used to play with them. It would be a game where I would throw them in the air and catch them before they hit the ground. Of course, I would do that one at a time, you understand. I wasn't juggling with them, trust me. But in every case, it always amazed me how relaxed they they were and what a great time they were having as I was throwing them up in the air. And without exception, over and over again, they would say, do it again, Dad, do it again. And often I remember marveling at their simple trust and thinking, you know, if that was me, I mean, I'd be stiff as a board. I'd be screaming my head off, not out of delight, but a sheer panic and and dread. But you see, the reason that they were so relaxed, even when their little world was totally out of control at the moment, is because... They were completely confident in me. You see, we had a history together. We played this game before, and I only dropped them a couple of times. (laughs) Not true. Now, you know, some of you may feel as if you're free-falling out of control without a parachute. Some of you are up in the air. You're not sure exactly what's happening or where you're going to land. And all I can say to you this morning is relax in the sovereign character of God. Take that step of faith knowing that God has never dropped you before and he's not going to drop you now. Face your present circumstances. Face your future with the sure confidence that God will work all things together for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. And as you do that, just remember that one day you're going to discover what Daniel discovered, 
And that is when all that you have left is God. God is enough. He's enough. Would you stand for closing prayer? Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to call you Lord and Master. And Lord, I want to thank you for the diversity that comes in life and the freedom that you've given us to choose. And I want to thank you for the example of Daniel who, who didn't allow your change of plans for him to defeat him. But he chose to trust in you and believe that you had a purpose for the problems that he was facing. I want to thank you, Lord, for the invitation that that you give us to find our rest in you. And I want to pray, Lord, whatever problems people are facing in their lives right now, I pray that today will be the day that they let go. The day would be the day that they let go of their agendas or their anger toward you or their anger toward others. And instead, they would crawl into your lap knowing that you love them, that you are in control, and that you are for them and that you will keep that which they commit to you. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh,